Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Halliwell, and today we will be joined by Dr. Zoe Gratwick to discuss her article, An Updated Review, Laboratory Investigations of Equine Renal Disease. Zoe works for Axiom Veterinary Laboratories and has her own business specialist, Equine Medical Services, and is a diplomat of the European College of Equine Internal Medicine. Hi, Zoe. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Lizzie. Glad to be here. Your review provides an excellent and detailed overview of the types of laboratory tests available to help clinicians assess kidney health and function. Firstly, the utility of dipstick analysis is described, and this is something which is simple to do and readily available in most equine practices. Could you summarise for us what useful information the dipstick analysis can provide? Of course. So dipsticks can provide a number of specific pieces of information rather than being able to give us an overall assessment of renal health. So one of the most useful things that we can determine from a dipstick is the presence or absence of haemoglobin, myoglobin or erythrocytes in the urine, although they can't be clearly differentiated on the indicator pad. On many occasions, a reason for the indicator change will be apparent from the information that you have already, for example, the clinical picture. But if it's not, it's a prompt to investigate the reason for this finding further. And it might also give you some information about the severity of the underlying pathology. So, for example, if you know you have rhabdomyolysis and now you're observing um, myoglobin in the urine, then obviously that's a severe episode of, of rhabdomyolysis. Another piece of useful information that a dipstick can give you is the presence or absence of glucose in the urine. So glycosuria is not a particularly common finding in horses, but if it is there, then it will usually warrant further thought. So glucose in the urine can be pre-renal or renal in origin. So pre-renal means it's a consequence of a high blood glucose concentration. This can be seen alongside PPID, severe physiologic stress, neoplasia or diabetes. Alternatively, it can be iatrogenic. So for example, when a horse is receiving IV glucose therapy. And renal glycosuria is a reflection of renal tubular dysfunction, usually due to direct tubular injury. Unless the reason for glycosuria is apparent from the history, clinical exam or other diagnostic findings, the presence of glycosuria will probably prompt you to assess renal function further or to measure blood glucose concentration or both. Dipsticks are unreliable for the detection of proteinuria and also false positives are not uncommon. But if you do see an increase in protein on a dipstick, it might be a useful clue and it would be worth looking into this further to establish whether there is true proteinuria or not. But whether or not dipsticks can reliably detect leukocytes in equine urine has not been demonstrated. So dipsticks certainly should not be used to rule out the possibility of inflammation in the urinary tract. But certainly if there is an indication on the pad, then this is worth noting, sometimes, particularly in an older sample, white cells might have lysed by the time a cytological exam is performed. And if the dipstick indicated leukocytes, you might want to reconsider the cytological findings. Increased urea and creatinine levels in the blood are referred to as azotemia. As for revision for our listeners, please could you remind us of the possible causes of azotemia and also comment on the sensitivity of using these values as markers of renal disease? 
Sure. So traditionally, the model of pre-renal, renal and post-renal causes of azotemia has been used. Renal is self-explanatory in that when any form of disease affecting renal function is present, renal azotemia may be seen. But relatively recently, there have been some changes in the understanding of pre-renal azotemia. So previously, pre-renal was taken to mean hypovolemia leading to a transient azotemia without any renal damage. However, in humans, it's now been clearly shown that when perfusion is reduced enough to cause azotemia, kidney injury actually does occur. And um, even if the azotemia is a direct result of hypovolemia, a degree of renal injury is likely to have occurred there too. So this type of azotemia usually quickly resolves, but this doesn't mean that renal damage hasn't occurred or that it has resolved, as we know that approximately 70% 75% of nephrons have to be non-functional before renal azotemia is seen. And it's for that reason that measurements of urea creatinine levels are low sensitivity tests for renal disease. And for this reason, the term pre-renal azotemia also has largely been replaced by the term acute kidney injury, also known as or abbreviated to AKI. We can see other causes of increases in urea or creatinine too that are technically pre-renal but don't tend to be classified that way and are not associated with acute inj kidney injury. So for example in neonatal foals born from mares where we, we're seeing placental insufficiency we can see high circulating creatinine levels and to a lesser degree sometimes urea levels. These typically resolve over the first three days of life, and this is known as spurious hypercreatinemia. Urea concentrations can also be increased for other reasons, such as muscle catabolism, gastrointestinal bleeding, or a high protein diet. And then post-renal azotemia is either due to loss of integrity of the urinary tract or obstruction of the urinary tract, for example, a ruptured bladder in a foal. But these this post-renal azotemia is certainly not as common as the other causes that I've mentioned. So what electrolyte derangement should we be looking out for, which might make us suspicious of renal pathology? And how are these different between acute and chronic disease? So no specific disturbances are highly specific or sensitive for the diagnosis of acute renal failure or chronic kidney disease and there's significant overlap between the two. So you can see hyponatremia, hypochloremia and hyperkalemia with either acute renal failure or chronic kidney disease. Alternatively in acute renal failure potassium levels can be low instead of increased. With regards to calcium you might see low levels in acute renal failure whereas you might see increased levels with chronic kidney disease and um, with phosphorus it's the other way around so you might see increased levels with acute renal failure versus decreased levels with chronic kidney disease and I say might because it, for all of these electrolytes with renal disease you don't always see significant changes in every one of those electrolytes. You previously mentioned um, dipstick analysis being poorly sensitive and specific for proteinuria um, what then is the best way for us to assess proteinuria in the horse and what can the presence of proteinuria indicate? So the most useful test is a urine protein to creatinine ratio. So in doing that, you modify the protein level and a ratio against creatinine concentration to take into account the influence of the urine concentration. So, for example, in a horse with very dilute urine, 
you could have overlooked the presence or relevance of urine protein if you simply looked at pure protein measurement alone or a dipstick protein indicator. When it comes to protein, you can um, again use the model of pre-renal, renal or post-renal for sources of protein. So pre-renal causes for an increase in a urine protein urine protein creatinine ratio could include myoglobin increased myoglobin levels or increased hemoglobin levels leading to myoglobinuria and hemoglobinuria although these are not indicators of renal damage they could potentially cause it um, with renal disease where the glomerulus or interstitium are affected you can this can cause directly proteinuria. So there are types of renal disease where you can have significant renal damage without an increased UPC when it's the tubules that are predominantly affected. So a UPC, uh, that's a urine protein creatinine ratio, alongside tests for tubular damage, such as a urine GGT creatinine ratio and measurement of urine glucose enables you to cover sort of all of the relative parts of the kidney. And then post-renal protein sources refer to anything after the kidney. So ureteral pathology producing protein is extremely rare in the horse. So it's mainly bladder or genital pathology with associated inflammation or bleeding that we're referring to. And I think it's an important point that urine protein isn't only a marker for renal diseases. We can see these post-renal sources of protein. Urinary cytology is rarely performed by first opinion practitioners in the field, but is this something that you would encourage us to do more of? Um, what kind of things are we looking for on, on cytology for renal disease? Yes, absolutely. So cytology can provide valuable information. Firstly, it can provide information as to the presence of hemorrhage or inflammation within the urinary tract. Secondly, it can enable identification of structures which might suggest renal tubular injury such as casts or renal tubular epithelial cells. As I would say, further training and practice can be needed to differentiate renal tubular epithelial cells from bladder epithelial cells. But thirdly, cytology can be used um, in the investigation of possible causes of renal disease, if that isn't already known in the case. However, it's not that common that this is the case and renal ultrasound plays an important role here too in terms of identifying the underlying cause. When it comes to cytology, one of the main limitations is the lack of stability of cells and casts within urine. So I think it's really important that samples are examined as soon as possible. And if that isn't going to be within a few hours of collection, then making stained sediment smears within that time frame would be ideal. And keeping urine refrigerated in EDTA can certainly help with cellular preservation, but it still isn't a total fix for the problem. And do you think fractional electrolyte excretion ratios are useful? And uh, what kind of cases would you recommend that um, the, this is utilised? So they can be useful, but perhaps not as frequently as some of the other tests that we have available to us. So the principle underlying the use of fractional electrolyte excretion ratios is that tubular dysfunction leads to altered electrolyte reabsorption or secretion. However, so does the level of dietary intake of each of the electrolytes. Having exercised recently, having received certain medications such as sedation or furosemide, or having been on IV fluids. So it can be part of the picture when assessing renal function, particularly if you have confounding factors, 
influencing other tests, for example, molecules such as myoglobin in the urine, potentially falsely increasing the urine SG. I say falsely, it's, it does increase the urine SG, but directly rather than the SG primarily reflecting renal concentrating ability. Um, it can also be useful if you have electrolyte abnormalities and the reason for them isn't entirely clear. Are there any kidney function tests in the pipeline that are under research that might be useful for equine vets in the future that we should know about? Yes, symmetric dimethylarginine, also known as SDMA, is a possibility. So this molecule is produced in all nucleated cells and is released into circulation during protein degradation. Its concentration is proportional to the glomerular filtration rate. So for this reason, its concentration will be affected by any pre-renal, renal or post-renal factors which are affecting that glomerular filtration rate. So there's a suggested reference interval now for adult horses and data suggesting that foals typically have higher serum levels than adult horses. And since I wrote the review on laboratory diagnostics for equine renal disease, there's been a new paper by Natalia Savinska and her colleagues demonstrating that increased STMA levels are seen in horses with acute kidney injury. Further work is needed to understand exactly how to interpret equine SDMA values in different disease states, but certainly we have a growing body of information to suggest that it could be useful. Thanks, Zoe. And finally, do you have a take-home message for equine vets about the tests which are most useful in assessing kidney disease in horses? Yes, I think if there could be one take-home message, it would be not to rule out renal disease based on normal urea and creatinine concentrations, especially in thin animals where you've got less muscle contributing to creatinine and circulation. I think urine-based tests are most likely to be useful if you have concerns about renal disease. In my opinion, urine-specific gravity and urine GGT creatinine ratio are two of the most useful tests. However, you can still absolutely have significant renal disease without changes in these test results. And that's why a more comprehensive assessment can be highly valuable. So in a case where you're concerned about renal disease, a panel of urine-specific gravity, dipstick analysis, a urine GGT creatinine ratio, a urine protein creatinine ratio, and a sediment exam is likely to provide you with useful information that you can pull together. And the history and clinical examination findings can often provide essential information in the interpretation of these diagnostic test results too. And sometimes further information will still be required, for example, renal ultrasonography. Thank you very much, Zoe, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.